So we've been studying the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and um, tonight we're going to talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be our great high priest. We're actually going to pick up a couple of the last verses of chapter 4 and then go all the way through chapter 5. Um, but I've told you before, sometimes the chapter breaks aren't in the best place as far as the flow of thought, so we're just going to ignore those tonight. Uh, but as we talk about Jesus as our high priest, I, I suspect that that's kind of an odd idea that maybe you haven't thought much about. Now, the, the Bible talks about the three offices of Christ, and you maybe never heard that language, so let me just give you a little theology lesson as we start tonight, okay? So you have kind of a framework to understand what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest and why that's such a big deal. Um, there are in the Bible really kind of three strands um, in the Old Testament about the coming one who would make things right. There is the, this promise in the Old Testament of a prophet like unto Moses, a priest after the order of Melchizedek who will come, and a king from the line of David. So the, the Jews in the Old Testament had these hopes for these figures that would be kind of the epitome of the things that they enjoyed, which were prophets, priests, and kings. When Jesus comes, he comes as all three. The prophet, like unto Moses, greater than Moses. The priest, after the order of Melchizedek, which Hebrews will talk about more later. I'm not going to talk about Melchizedek right now. It's a very fr uh, fascinating topic, and we'll talk about that in a later chapter when Hebrews gets into it more. And then he's the true king. Now, Hebrews doesn't talk much about Jesus as the true king, though the writer of Hebrews certainly believes that, but it really develops the idea of Jesus as the prophet in chapter 1. In these last days, God spoke... In Jesus. In the pr previous times, many ways long ago, he spoke through various men over various times in various ways. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, this is the right at the beginning of the book, he has spoken to us by Jesus, in Jesus. Okay? So that's, Jesus is the, the ultimate prophet. And now we're going to get into what does it mean for him to be a priest. Here's the thing. The offices of Christ these roles that he fulfills are the way he does his work. Let me say that again. The, the, the reason that it's important to understand the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, is that is how he does his work. Everything that Jesus does fits in those three titles. They're also how he works through his people. Everybody in this room it has a combination of prophet, priest, and king, even in the way you've been gifted and equipped. Let me explain. The prophet is the one who sees what needs to happen, just has an ability to see this is what God's word says, this is what needs to happen. The king is the one who says, here's what we need to do, and here's how we're going to do it. People with kingly kinds of gifts are, are people that can organize and tell people what to do, right? And then there's the priest. Now, the priest is the one who encourages you along the way and comforts you in the midst of the brokenness when you can't do what you think needs to be done 
and when other people don't understand and don't see where we need to go. All three of those are important. And here's what I've, I've found over the years. Different people have different kind of almost abilities to, to be one of those three, sometimes more than one. And they tend to go to d churches that already do the thing that they're pretty good at. So like kingly people go to churches that are really good at getting stuff done. You know, they like, they like churches that are organized. They like everybody knows their place and their role. And they, they go find their, their place there. And then there's like prophet people that just love to like study the Bible and talk about theology. And they look at the Bible and they're like, oh, here's how I correct everybody else's doctrine because this is true and what they believe isn't. And then there's the priestly people. The priestly people are the ones that can comfort and be with you. And here's the thing, different churches and different ministries have particular strengths and weaknesses because people tend to go to places that are already strong in the thing they're good at, unfortunately. Like, you tend to come to a, place, to a church like RUF and you'll be like, man, they're not very good at like loving on people. I'm gonna go to this other church that already loves on people really well. It probably means that you could really help us. And we need you. We need you to not go over to the church that's already doing all that stuff good. We need you to say, hey, I see this problem and I see this gap and maybe I have gifts to help. All right, so, so this, is, this is important to know as backdrop. Here's the, here's the th reason I wanted to bring all that up. Presbyterians, and, and you know, I'm a Presbyterian minister. RUF is sponsored by a Presbyterian church, though most of the people here are not Presbyterian and you, know, you don't, of course, need to be. We're glad to have you here. But what you should understand is Presbyterians tend to be really strong on profit and not so good on priests. In other words, we like to talk about doctrine. And I find actually a lot of people over the years, I've been doing RUF now 24 years, and I find a common story. A lot of people grow up in churches that are all about doing stuff. And a lot of like, even the direction for their life as Christians is about, I just need to do this, and I need to do that, and I need to do that. And then they come into RUF, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, there's this whole world of theology and grace, and I never understood any of these things, and it's life-changing. And then sometimes they just think that that's enough without really learning how to love God and receive his love and to love other people. Like what I'm saying is we need all three, and as I was thinking about this, the reason that I love doing the book of Hebrews fairly regularly in RUF is because it's the one book that really develops the priesthood of Jesus in, in really a somewhat unique way. And what it shows us is we really need this full picture of who Jesus is if we could, should be or would be fully the people of God that we should be. And I, I was thinking even, you know, one of the things that I think has been so important about the songs we sing in RUF is so many of them are about the priestly side, right? Like I was just listening to all the songs and reading the words, and there's so much about God speaking comfort. And, and, and that's why I think that those hymns, along with preaching from the Bible, fellowship, and then these hymns, have this remarkable way of, of kind of giving us a full-orbed understanding of what the Christian life is about. It's not just about knowing the truth, it's understanding the heart of Jesus for his people, right? So, as we come to this passage, that's why it's important to understand the high priesthood of Jesus, but it's also a somewhat difficult concept to get because the point of a priest 
is a priest is a go-between. When you can't approach somebody directly, and you know the problem with, with us understanding that in our day and age is we live in a culture that very low power differential in the way we think about life. In other words, most of us believe that even the powerful should be accessible and available to us. Very different than like the ancient world where you would never presume to just barge into the king's throne room uninvited. But we kind of feel like, I have a right to be there. I'm just as good as anybody else. You know, who are they? We try to pull anybody that seems to like stick up. We kind of pull them back down to reality. I don't care, you know, that this person is, I know what they're really human and they really got all these foibles and I follow them on Instagram so I know, you know. There's a sense in which it's really hard to, to get on our heart this idea of why we need a priest when it comes to our relationship with God and why the priesthood of Jesus is so vital. But I'm going to try and get into that tonight. So let's, let's read this passage, and then we're going to see what the writer of Hebrews has for us to understand about the priesthood of Jesus. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 4 with verse 14. I did mention this a little bit last week, but we're going to cover that again because it ties into all of chapter 5. This is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor, that means the honor of being the high priest, for themselves, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, Aaron the brother of Moses, the first of the Levitical priests. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he, meaning God, says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus was appointed to this priesthood. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's rich stuff, but look what the writer says next in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a weird ending to this chapter, isn't it? But I think it points out this important point. This stuff that the writer wants to have them understand about the priesthood of Jesus is really important. But it's kind of the deeper stuff. And the great tragedy is the Hebrews really need to know this, particularly as they're going through suffering. And they can't hear it. They can't hear it. But tonight, we're going to try and dig into it. All right? So the high priest. As I said, what's the purpose of a high priest? The purpose of a high priest, and it said here, is they offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's chapter 5, verse 1. They're appointed to offer sacrifices before God. That's the purpose of a high priest. Why do we need a high priest? Well, because sin has cut us off from God. Now, I know sometimes we're used to thinking, okay, sin makes us guilty before God. That's true. But what sin also does, and what's the particular connection with the priesthood, is sin cuts us off from the gracious presence of God. If you remember the story of the Garden of Eden, what happens after Adam and Eve sin? They're cast out of the presence of God. You know, it is interesting the Garden of Eden is not the same place as the temple. But both of them are the same in this respect. They both are places that communicate the presence of God. The garden was the garden because it was the presence of God. The temple has a part in it called the Holy of Holies that really is what the Garden of Eden was all about. I don't know if you understand this. So the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are kicked out, what, what happens? God puts an angel with a flaming sword to keep them from getting back into the presence of God. In the temple, the Jewish temple, there was this great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies and then only once a year, and then only after going through all these elaborate rituals to be clean, was the high priest. And embroidered on that, on that curtain, and it was a thick curtain, 30 feet high, 2 feet thick, embroidered on it were palm trees and a sword. You see the imagery? The only way that you get into the Holy of Holies is if you go under the sword. That's what the sacrificial system is about. You see, here's the thing. God, in providing a priest, is saying to his people, even though you've sinned against me, I'm still going to provide a way for you to have access to me again. But it's going to require someone going under the sword. And all of the animal sacrifices are pointing to that. God teaching them that Access to me, to being in my presence without being obliterated, requires someone to pay. And so the priests offer these sacrifices, teaching God's people 
year after year after year, two things. There is a, a possibility of getting back into the presence of God, but it requires death. And the fact that the sacrifices happen over and over and over again means that they're not really working. They're pointing us to a provision that God will send one day, but they themselves are not accomplishing the cleansing. So that's what the priest is about. And you know, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies, the tradition is, we don't know if this is actually totally true, but the tradition is that he had bells around the bottom of his robe and he had a rope tied around his ankle. So that when he went in there, this is where the Ark of the Covenant is. He goes before the Ark of the Covenant and he's going to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Well, you've all seen the movie. Like, if, if you don't, if, you, if you're not, you know, everything's not above board just right, the Ark could kill you. The presence of God could kill you. And if it kills the high priest, they're going to know. You know why? Because the bells will stop ringing when he stops moving. And then... No one is going in to get him. They want to be able to pull him back out. Like it was a really big deal to go into the presence of God. This is the thing that makes it really hard in our day and age to understand why the gospel is such a big deal. Is because we just feel like, well, of course we can enter into the presence of God. God is gracious. Of course he'd want us to be around. That's not really true. God's presence apart from the shed blood of Jesus, is not a blessing. So what are the qualifications for a high priest? Well, he must be able to identify with those he represents. And the writer of Hebrews talks about that a lot. You don't take the honor yourself, and you have to be one who can empathize and sympathize. As a matter of fact, the, the priest was appointed from among men, and he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, and that actually helped him, at least ideally, to understand human weakness. Now, here's what's really interesting. None of the Jewish writings talk about the weakness of the high priest. They don't talk about it at all, let alone talking about it as a good thing. So you have to ask the question, where does the writer of Hebrews get this idea that the high priest, to be a, the, the, the high priest that we need, must be one who understands human weakness? Where does that come from? You know where it comes from? It comes from looking at who Jesus was. Sometimes you're trying to figure out what we need to be from looking at each other. And it's really hard to know what we should be. But sometimes, if you look at Jesus, you're like, oh, this is the model. When we see who Jesus, the high priest, actually was, we realize, the writer of Hebrews realizes, oh, weakness is actually built into this thing because the fact that the high priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sins is designed to humble him. But you know what was the great irony of that? Is that in Jesus' day, the high priest, the high priest honor was bought and paid for by one family. It's very much like the Medici family and the medieval papacy. 
That's what was going on. So the high priest was supposed to be appointed and was appointed every year, but it was rigged. There was no way for the Jewish people to understand what the high priest was supposed to be like until Jesus came. And then they saw who he was. Now, he's supposed to serve in this year for, or serve in this role for a year. But in Jesus' day, while that was true, they were doing that. And you'll read later, uh, well, you read in the Gospels, there's one point where the high priest, it says that he was high priest that year, said, you know, spoke at the trial of Jesus. And you're like, oh, okay, they were still doing that. But it was corrupted. It was corrupted. Jesus is our high priest. Now, he's like these other priests in some ways. And the writer of Hebrews brings this out, right? He was a real man. He was like us in every way. He really can represent us because he is like us. But also, he was appointed to this office. Right? But he's unlike all the other priests in this. Look at verse 10. Being designated, sorry, why did I say verse 10? That's wrong. Um, Learned obedience. Oh yeah, no, it is verse 9. So I was off by one. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's something never said of any human priest. As a matter of fact, the Greek could be translated this way. He is the cause of our salvation. What Jesus does works. Whereas what all the other human priests did needed to be repeated over and over and over again. What Jesus does works. Now Hebrews is going to get into that more later, so I'm going to talk about that later. But here's what I want you to understand. Imagine being a Jewish man or a Jewish woman and being told, like the end of chapter 4 says, that you can now enter boldly into the Holy of Holies. I, I, I need you to try to picture how ridiculous that would sound. Like what the book of Hebrews is saying is astonishing. But I think it's this privilege that we have that we can't even get our hearts around. Try to think of yourself like a first century Jew. Every year, the high priest offers all these sacrifices, goes into the Holy of Holies, and listen, you're wondering, is he going to get obliterated or is God going to accept the sacrifices that he offers on behalf of the nation of Israel? It's like the very first day of atonement in Leviticus 16. The whole story builds and builds and builds. Aaron builds the altar and he does all this stuff. And the high point of drama in the narrative is, will God accept the sacrifice? And when he does, people are elated because it means that God is, is saying that he will receive us. And now the writer of Hebrews says, you yourself can go into the Holy of Holies. It's hard to get our hearts around that concept. You can enter the Holy of Holies and you won't die. You won't die. Like I said, it's hard to get this because we feel like, oh, of course we could enter into God's presence. I, I, I think about some of the songs that that gets sung that I hear, and I won't point out any in particular, but I, I have a friend, Lester Ruth, he's a worship professor at Duke, research professor of worship, I think that's what his title is, at Duke, and he says that when you study modern songs, there's not very much of 
we approach God only through the shed blood of Jesus. There's a lot of, God, we want your presence, and singing is the way that you're going to come close to us, or the thing that's going to draw your presence to us. It's interesting. That's not, that's not Hebrews. See, it's really hard if you think that all I have to do is really, really want to be in God's presence and tell him through singing, and then he'll come. It's really hard to understand why having a high priest is a big deal. You understand? I was talking to Wendy. I was trying to figure out how do we, how do we even get people to understand this? And, and she, she suggested this, so I'm going to try this. Listen, you can pay a lot of money to get a backstage pass to Beyonce's concert. You may even get a meter. You may even get to take a picture, but you aren't getting invited over to her house. You're not. Like, you know, I was in a movie with Johnny Cash. I was. I was in a movie with Johnny Cash. He doesn't know my name. <laughs> he didn't know my, know my name then. I was in the same room with him. I said, hi. I've got the movie. I've got the video. But it doesn't matter. He doesn't know who I am. Like, there are still people that you don't have access to. You really don't. Unless you have a go-between. Unless somebody's like, oh, yeah, I know Beyonce. I'm going over to come with me. Then you might get there. I don't know if you know those people. You may actually not even know if you know those people. I remember there were some students in RUF years and years ago who got to be friends with the guys in Mumford. They went and did a tour with them. And lo and behold, they did a house show at these guys' house. Mumford and Sons did a house show at, the, at, at this, these students from Belmont's house. Can you imagine that? But here's the thing. I didn't get invited. I didn't get invited. <laughs> but I, I'll, bet, I'll bet half the people that these guys knew, these Belmont students knew, didn't even know that they knew guys that were going to have Mumford play a house show at their house. Right? I, I think what I'm trying to get you to see is you don't just automatically get access. God doesn't just automatically hear your prayers because that's his job. We get access. We get confidence to come boldly before the throne of God because Jesus was the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have this incredible privilege that we really fail to appreciate. Like I said, God doesn't just hear our prayers because it's his job. There was, I, I was reading, I was trying to remember who said this this quote, it turned out to be a German poet I'd never heard of from the 19th century, but he was asked on his deathbed if he was worried about meeting God, and he said, oh no, God will forgive me, that's his job. Sounds a little irreverent, doesn't it? But I think that we have that kind of sense of entitlement. It's really hard to understand Christianity and understand the gospel with that kind of sense of entitlement. Well, let me just say a couple things about the high priest and why it matters. Gaze upon this high priest, Jesus. Think about his work and think of it in terms of the priesthood. In, in verse 7, it talks about how in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And you might think, well, that's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, or that's talking about when he's on the cross. It actually is talking about all the days of his flesh. Here's a mind-blowing thought. Jesus' work began with the incarnation. He suffered his entire life. And the book of Hebrews says he actually learned and grew through suffering. Now, that's a mind-blowing idea. We're not even sure exactly what it means. How is it that Jesus 
grew, Jesus is perfect and yet he's still not fully equipped or complete, he grew as he experienced suffering. In other words, his entire life of suffering was all about the work that he did on our behalf. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he was sorrowful to the point of death. But it wasn't the physical suffering that made him cry out. Remember that? Like when they beat Jesus, he doesn't say anything. When they put the crown of thorns on his head, he's silent. What makes him cry out? When he experiences the wrath of God. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you can try to get your sort of heart around what it was like, the physical suffering. You can't even imagine, I can't even imagine the spiritual torment that made him cry out on the cross. He was suffering. You want to get a sense of what he was suffering? Look at Leviticus 26. I remember I had a student years ago, they're like, man, Leviticus 26, the curses of the covenant? Like, that's crazy. I don't even know how I can believe in God when I read those kinds of curses that are threatened for those who disobey him. And I said, well, here's what you need to understand. There you are actually getting a, a, a little peek into what Jesus suffered on the cross. Because on the cross, he suffered all of the curses of the covenant. And then you look in, in, in Leviticus 26 at the blessings of the covenant. Those were secured for us by what Jesus did. If you ever find it hard to get your heart around what the cross was really all about, read Leviticus 26. I guarantee it will help you. But Christ prayed, you know, not to be saved, from, to be delivered from dying, but he prayed actually for God to sustain him in the temptations that the sufferings would bring. Luke twenty two forty three says this, that God sent an angel to strengthen him in the garden. In other words, Jesus did not resort to his divine power and divine nature to endure the cross, but he lived as the perfect, submissive, and dependent man as the priest needed to be all the way to the very end. Jesus, the high priest, he suffered and cried his whole life. He suffered from the moment of his birth, and it got worse and worse and worse as he got closer to the cross. But you know what the Bible says? I love this, this little phrase in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. It says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, where he was going to die, and he wouldn't be deterred. What other religion has a God who becomes one of us rather than staying aloof and distant from pain? See, the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, is unique among world religions, but it's not just a cool little trick. The incarnation is not a cool little trick. It was so that Jesus could be our high priest because we needed access to God. Last thing I want to say about this, Jesus offered himself on the cross. He suffered, but he also was active working on the cross. He was not passive. You understand this? 
there's this great quote, A.W. Pink. I don't know if you've ever heard of A.W. Pink. He was kind of a strange dude, but he wrote some great books. No, he really was. He lived on this little island and devoted himself to studying the scripture and writing this little magazine that about 100 people around the world read. Um, but incredibly rich stuff. He talks about this, about what the cross was like. And I love this. He says, hell's utmost force and fury gathered against him, heaven's sword devouring him, and heaven's God forsaking him. Earth and hell and heaven thus in conspiring action against him unto the uttermost of heaven's extremest justice and earth and hell's extremest injustice. What is the glory of the cross if it be not this, that with such action conspiring to subdue his action, his action outlasted and outlived them all. And he did not die subdued and overborne in the dying. He did not die till he offered up himself in death. You understand? Heaven and earth, God's justice, all of the injustice of men conspired against Jesus to tempt him to get off that cross at any moment he could have called down legions of angels, but he won. He won. He didn't just die. He wasn't killed. He gave up his spirit as a priest for us. Christ, our high priest, offers something to God. He doesn't come to God with empty hands, and that's our security. It says that because he honored God to the very end, he's able to save us to the uttermost. In other words, you are saved by works, but they're not yours. They're the works of Christ. And he did that work all the way to the very end. Have you made use of Jesus as your high priest? Four applications as we close. Have you made use of him for salvation? Now, I, I don't want to like play on your emotions, but this is just worth reflecting on. If Christ feared bearing the wrath of God on the cross so much that in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat was like great drops of blood, does that not move you to want to flee the wrath to come? Jesus was not kidding when he went to the cross. And if you've not run to Christ, run to him now. You do not want to face what made Jesus sweat great drops of blood. And neither do your friends. Have you made use of Jesus, our priest, for returning to God? Have you been running from God? You have a priest who understands and welcomes all who come to him. You made use of him in your sorrow. Remember I said, the priest is the one who comforts us. One of the things that the Old Testament priests did, they didn't just offer sacrifices, they actually were the doctors as well, right? They were the ones that you went to for all kinds of healing. Have you made use of Jesus in your sorrow? There is no sorrow or pain that you will feel that Jesus has not felt more grievously. He experienced betrayal, Abuse, poverty, hunger, homelessness, loneliness, not to mention torture. 
run to him. And then finally, have you made use of him in your burden for our broken world? In other words, Jesus came and had his heart broken as he looked at the world that he had created beautiful, that had been so ruined by sin. Have you ever asked Jesus to give you his heart for the world? I need need this. (laughs) I need this, to ask Jesus to give me a heart that breaks for the things that break his. Right? And that's part of Jesus the high priest too. He wants us to become like him. Priests. This is what Abraham did, right? When God said he was going to destroy Lot, he intercedes. He intercedes. And all God's people are called to intercede with God. Jesus is our high priest.